Going to be in 1 Samuel 16. We've been coming to this point for quite some time. I don't know, what was it, one year, two years? We began Joshua. We've been in it for quite a while, and it's been a journey. It's taken us on a trip through Israel's history. How Israel, the nation of Israel, came to this point. Of course, they had left Egypt, and God made a nation out of them. He gave them His law, gave them His word. And even though they rejected it and they had to wander in the wilderness for many years, for 40 years, finally Israel's come to the point where they can enter the promised land, and they do, and under the leadership of Joshua, who is being led by the Holy Spirit, who's being led by God, they enter the promised land. And it's such a promising start because they conquer so much and they move in so much and God does so much for them. It's amazing to see what God does for Israel. And then after Joshua's death, it just seems to go downhill, doesn't it? They turn away from Yahweh. And time and time again, God brings them back. He rescues them. He brings them reminders of his grace Reminders of the contrast between his grace and his holiness and their sin. And they turn back to him, and he saves them over and over and over again. And despite all those reminders, Israel fails over and over and over again. Kind of the uniting theme behind the book of Judges is, in those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. What Israel needed was a king. They wouldn't follow God. They wouldn't follow Yahweh. They wanted someone to show them, they needed someone to show them how to serve Yahweh, how to follow Yahweh. Someone, a human being there, a person that they could see, someone who would speak to them God's word. Someone who would point to the nation that this is our real king. This is God. These other gods that all these nations around you, you so badly want to serve, they're not gods. Only Yahweh is. Israel needed a king, and then eventually they asked for a king. They said, God brought them a leader in the form of a prophet, Samuel. He said, Samuel, you're not going to be with us forever. You're not going to be our leader forever. We need a king. We need stability in our nation. And well, they were right. But they asked in the wrong way. Remember the wording of how they asked. We need a king just like all the other nations. We want to be like them. They're stable. They're strong. They're secure. We want to be like them. They wanted to be just like all the other nations. What they didn't ask for was a king that would lead them to Yahweh. A king, a leader who would be like Samuel. They wanted to be like just like everybody else. Like a child building, how's it go? Mud pies and the clay when they could be on a vacation on a sandy beach building sandcastles. They could have asked for so much more, but they wanted to be just like everybody else. Just like all the other nations. And so God gave them that in the form of Saul. And 
We talked down to Saul about Saul quite a bit, but really, in all honesty, Saul wasn't a bad guy. He was not a bad king in the world's estimation. He united the people. He was a strong leader. He started out slow at first. God's spirit came on him at first. It looked promising at first. Samuel was decisive. He proved that when he took that sacrifice, took it upon himself to offer a sacrifice. He was a decisive leader. He looked well to the interest of his kingdom. He saw opportunity and he seized it. He proved that when he took the Amalekites' sheep and cattle. By worldly standards, by human standards, Saul was a great king. And he failed. He wasn't faithful to God. He was not faithful to Yahweh. He did not lead the nation. He was, well, just like all the other kings. And God rejected him from being king. He failed. By human strength and by human wisdom, the end result is failure. We think we're so clever. We think we're so smart. We can conquer raging rivers. We can build dams and tame them. We do all these great things. We can't hold back an ocean. Saul thought he was so smart at first and hold, fighting back the Philistines. And then God brought an impossible task. As the text describes, like as numerous as the sands of the sea, God brought an ocean on Saul. And Saul tried to do it in his own strength. He tried to deal with it by himself. And honestly, he did the best that mankind could do. He took matters into his own hands. He grabbed the bull by his horns and got thrown into the air. He wasn't loyal to God. He didn't let God take the reins, take hold of the picture. And so he failed. God rejected him from being king. And now, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to the nation of Israel? Now they have a king that's been rejected by God. What is mankind to do? It's hopeless. And that, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, is where we find the prophet Samuel. Hopeless, mourning, grieving. What's happened to Saul? He had so much promise. He fell. God rejected him. He rejected God first. And then God rejected him. He's not going to be our king. His children are not going to rule over Israel. Israel is going to have no king. It's just going to be like judges all over again. What is going to happen to the nation of Israel? In 1 Samuel 16, God answers, Then the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? You see, Man's plan has failed, but God's plan hasn't failed. It's been going according to his plan the whole time. God has been preparing Israel through pain and suffering and failure over and over and over again. He has been leading Israel to this point, getting them ready to accept the king that he has chosen for himself. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself 
a king among his sons. This is not in mankind's hands. It is in God's hands. And God, when mankind is at the end of his rope, that's when God shows up and he is going to do this himself. He's chosen a king. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. What about the logistics? How am I going to do this? This is a threat to Saul's reign. How, he's going to kill me if I try to do this. You really think God hasn't thought about that? You really think God hasn't explored all the options? If the Almighty, who is about to prepare a king for Israel, cannot provide the logistics? Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. That makes it simple. Just take a sacrifice with you. You're going. You're going to offer a sacrifice. It's not a lie. That's exactly what he's going to do. The purpose of the sacrifice is unclear to everyone else at this point. And so on arrival in Bethlehem, the elders of the city came to meet him, trembling and said, do you come peaceably? Uh, what's the sacrifice for? Are you here to judge us? Has something gone wrong? Or have you come to... Make us, have you come to worship? Have you come to worship or have you come to judge? And he said, peaceably, I've come to you to sacrifice to the Lord. We're going to have a party. We're going to celebrate. We're going to sacrifice. We're going to celebrate our great God. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. And well, Eliab may have looked very promising. Uh, back in that time period, looks were everything. Appearances were everything. Um, someone who's really short, has a terrible voice, terrible shape, is ugly, is not going, nobody's going to follow him. People wanted to see a great and powerful king, and Samuel thought Eli saw Eliab and thought, oh man, this is great. Yeah, God, you've made a good choice right here. Uh, Samuel, no. No, that's not the king. Yeah, no. Look past that. And then God reveals something about himself here. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. Just like Saul, I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Saul looked like a great king, but he wasn't. He wasn't loyal to God. He wasn't faithful to Yahweh. God doesn't judge people the way people do. I mean, we can't judge the way God does. God looks past the outward appearance. And in our culture, we like to think we do too. We look at people's actions, their character, their credentials, how smart a person is. We look at what the things they've done, the accomplishments they've done. We like to think we're better than that, but we're still judging by outward appearances. Judging by what we can see, that doesn't tell us the thoughts and the motives that drive a person from the inside out. God sees that. God not only sees what's there, but what will be there. You see, David 
whom we will meet here later. David didn't look like much. But God saw what was in David's heart. God saw purity. He saw a willingness to follow him and to serve him and a willingness to put himself aside and let God take over. And he saw what would be through David, what he would make of David. And so Eliab, no, I've rejected him. And Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. It's kind of like a picky child at the dinner table and doesn't like anything. Nope, 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 don't want that. No, that's not the one I've chosen. Oh, that's kind of confusing. Um, I'm supposed to come here and anoint one of Jesse's sons here to be king, but none of these are going to be the king. What, oh God, what are you doing? What's going on here? Samuel said to Jesse, are there all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest. Even his father didn't think he was worthy to be here. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And it may have been that, that David was so good at keeping the sheep is the only one that could be trusted to keep the sheep. And that may seem small. So he wouldn't bring him to the sacrifice. He wouldn't bring him. This couldn't be the king. He was a shepherd. Samuel said to Jesse, send him and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. We're not going to take part in any of the sacrifice. We're not going to do anything else until David is here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. Makings of a king, right? You know, God chose a man who was pure of heart, who would have the skills to lead an army, would have the skills to unite people, but was also loyal to him. Do you really think that it's a small thing that God could make him good looking to? that God would give him everything else he needs. God had the one thing that he really needed. God of more than infinite resources can handle everything else. So he gives them that. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is the king. What, God, what are you doing? This doesn't look like much. How could this boy, shepherd boy, be the king of Israel? God looks on the heart. He sees what he would make. God didn't simply choose a good leader to be king. He chose someone who was going to be faithful to him, someone pure of heart, someone who was willing to follow him. Saul, Saul took things in his own hands. He was strong, he was confident in his own abilities, but he wasn't confident in God's abilities. David, on the other hand, when he faced Goliath, stood before a giant, he was confident 
not in his ability to sling a stone. Uh, we joke at that and think, oh, David stood before Goliath as a slingshot. Really, a sling was a powerful weapon. It took a lot of skill to use. Um, they were used as late as even the, the Romans. They would fashion their own ammo to go in a sling, and it was powerful. It could do just as much damage as a bow and arrow. So we shouldn't joke about David standing before Goliath with a sling and a stone. But David didn't rely on his own strength, even though he had it. He relied on God's strength. What did he say to Goliath? You come to me with a sword and a spear, but I come to you not with a sling. I come to you with the name of the Lord. God is going to give you giant warrior Goliath into my hand. My hands are small and insignificant, but God's hands shape the world and can undo the world in an instant, and he will undo you. God handed Goliath over. David had the utmost respect. He knew that Samuel had anointed him. David knew that he was anointed to be the king of Israel, the next king of Israel. But he had the utmost respect for the fact that Saul was the Lord's anointed too. David had opportunity before him. He had a bright future and he could see it. You think that wasn't a temp that couldn't be a temptation for somebody? To see that, oh, God is bringing me to be the next king. Maybe I should just try to take some of that myself. Maybe it would be God's will for me, to, it would be God's will for me to take that for myself. But David didn't. He had chance after chance to do that. Saul offered David his own daughter. He offered him a chance to be his son-in-law. And while well, eventually he did become Saul's son-in-law, he was hesitant to do it. At one point, even telling Saul, is it insignificant to you to make someone your son-in-law? Is that a small thing? I'm just a son of a poor nobody. I was a shepherd boy. I play music. And everything that you've given me, everything that you've taught me, you have given me. And so I am nobody significant. The Lord's anointed. Nobody's significant. In time, Saul would try to kill David. And David would be morally justified in taking Saul's life in self-defense, perhaps. He could easily, in human terms, justify doing that. In fact, at many points, the people who were loyal to David rebuked David for, this guy's trying to kill us. This guy's trying to kill you. You could take the crown right now. No, I'm not going to strike down the Lord's anointed. God set him up to be king, and only God can take him down. I am not going to move my hand. I'm not going to lift myself up. I'm going to let God do that for me. He trusted God. He wasn't going to do it himself. He had the power. He had the ability, he had the skill, he had the people who were willing to follow him around him. He could unite the nation, he could do it on his own, but not without God. 
And when he finally became king, when Saul finally was killed in battle, when God finally brought Saul down, what did David do? He mourned. This was the Lord's anointed. This was the king of Israel. He wrote a funeral song for Saul. And he told the man that told him about Saul's death, this isn't a day to rejoice. Maybe you thought you were bringing me good news, but you didn't. This is a sad day. And he put that man to death because he had the audacity to touch the Lord's anointed, even though God had done it himself. God built David up, and David trusted in him. But even David wasn't perfect. David failed too. Relied on his own strength, and he took Bathsheba for himself. He took reached out and took for himself. And so even David fell. He wasn't perfect. He didn't follow the Lord perfectly. He was human just like the rest of us. So we shouldn't put David on a pedestal as this great saint of old because he really wasn't. He was just like any one of us. The only thing that made him great, a great king, was God working through him. hope of Israel wasn't found in princes. Wasn't found in great kings. Wasn't found in great men. It wasn't even found in saints. Holy men or prophets. Even though people looked to them for hope. They looked to them for hope because they gave the word of God. Hope for Israel was only found in God. And why was Israel held up as a beacon of hope? Because of God's promise that the entire world would be blessed through Israel. Hope for Israel meant the hope of the whole world. And for one reason, the one reason that we celebrate this time of year, Jesus Christ. Israel wasn't a great beacon of hope for the world just because it was a great nation. It was a beacon of hope for the world because God would bring a sacrifice for the sin of all mankind through Israel. After David came Solomon, and Solomon too failed. Many kings came after Solomon, and they failed. There were some terrible kings. There were some kings that had absolutely no faith in God at all. There were some kings that were hostile to God. There were some kings that led the nation of Israel. It's the split nation of Israel, the kingdom of Judah, away from God, led them to serve other gods. But God wasn't done. We might think it was a bad time for Israel. It wasn't a bad time for God. Because God was working a miracle. Through pain and through failure, through sin, and the mess that we make out of life, God was making something beautiful. 
more beautiful than mankind could ever make for himself. God brought the nation of Babylon. He sent the Assyrians, and he sent Israel, and he sent Judah into exile. They spent years away from their land, and God brought them back. Finally, maybe God's going to make something great here. It didn't last. What God made was going to last, but what they thought God was making didn't last. Eventually, Israel came under the grip, the iron grip of Roman rule. And they were crying out for God. God sent someone to deliver us from Rome. If you look back through their history, it wasn't Rome. It wasn't the Assyrians or the Babylonians or even the gods of the nations around them. They had a deeper problem. It was in their heart. As human beings, we all share that problem. We are all born with a heart that is dead. Spiritually, we're all stillborns. Spiritually, we can't know God. We can't even desire to have fellowship with God, not the way God truly is. Because God is holy. God is just. God sees our sin. God sees what's wrong with us, and he exposes it. We don't want anything to do with that on our own. But he doesn't expose it just to shame us. He exposes us with the intent of changing us. He led Israel down this dark and painful road to bring them to this point where the Messiah would come into the world. As Jesus walked amongst mankind, the people who believed him, people who followed him, even they thought, oh, this man, he's going to free us from Rome. He's going to release us from the pain that we suffer. That's what we want, isn't it? A God who eases our pain, who makes life easier for us. That's what we think we want. Broken relationships, struggling marriages, disease, loss, pain, and suffering. Those are the things that we want to be freed from. But the problem is deeper. You see, God can take broken relationships. The deeper problem, selfishness, jealousy, anger, pride, he can replace them with love. He can replace them with selflessness. He can take failed marriages and mend them back together. He can take families where there's nothing but bitterness and fighting. He can make them into something beautiful. He can bring love and healing and restoration where there was nothing but brokenness. He can take disease and illness, and yes, he has the power to heal them. But he, can turn them he can turn the pain around into an opportunity to grow in him and to trust in him and to have faith in him like we never could before. 
and one day he will remove the pain and the suffering of the illness. And he'll give us a body that's incorruptible. But before he'll do that, he'll work on the heart. And he'll work on how we respond to that illness and the pain and the suffering. The illness in itself then becomes a way of healing. A way of healing to a heart that won't trust in God. And he'll wake us up. We realize it was God that brought the healing all along. We trusted in our good health when really it was God that we should be trusted in because he gave it to us. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's the ability to su provide support and caring for our family. We trust in our abilities and our skills and then the job's taken away. And now what? are we going to do? Now, there was a time I had to worry about that and taking care of my family. I'm like, what is God going to, what are we going to do? What am I going to do? That was back when there were no jobs to be had around here. But God was working. And it wasn't until I stopped worrying I said, okay, God, I don't know what you're doing, but I know you're going to do something great. Even if it means us living on the streets and having to trust in you to provide every single day with the things that we need. If that's your will, I'm going to trust you for it. <laughs> he didn't throw us out on the streets. He gave me a job. When I was willing to trust in him to provide it and not try to take it for myself. God provides. It's, he owns the cattle on a thousand. He owns the world. When Mary and Joseph had to flee to Egypt. How would they provide? How are they going to afford the trip? Well, God gave them riches, sent them through the wise men. God can provide. He owns the whole world. And out of nothing, he created this shining, bright, hot beacon miles and miles away from earth to make sure that that provision got where it needed to go, which was really just a side purpose for it. He built that so the wise men could see Jesus, could worship him. And yes, he... Gave Mary and Joseph gold, frankincense, and myrrh, the things that they would need on their way. It's no big deal to God to provide. It's a much bigger deal to God to heal our hearts and to draw us and lead us to follow him. God can heal the suffering. God can heal the pain. He can take away the cancer. He can do what doctors can't. He can heal nerves and repair what doctors can't fix. God can do that. He created you. He made your body, fashioned it himself. He can fix it. But first, he wants to work on our hearts. God could free Israel from the nation of Rome. And eventually he did. 
even though Israel was scattered across the whole world. Eventually, he brought them back together, and today they're there still. God can do amazing things. But first, he wants our hearts. First, he wants to send Jesus into the world. And when he was dying on the cross for our sins, the disciples didn't know what God was doing. Disciples didn't see the beauty of their mentor and their teacher, their Messiah, bleeding and dying on a cross. They didn't see the beauty of him being placed in the grave. They were probably wondering, what in the world is God doing? He was the Messiah, God's promised one. Maybe Satan won. Maybe Rome defeated him. God? Could they defeat God? No, because in three days, Jesus would rise from the dead. And it wasn't until quite some time afterward that the disciples realized what just happened. God took their broken hearts, their hearts that were cold and dead, and sent a sacrifice that would change them. When he sent 12 ordinary men out into the world to tell the good news about Jesus Christ, it was through that very sacrifice that changed their hearts, that enabled the Holy Spirit to come into the world. And these 12 ordinary nobodies gave the gospel to the world. They gave the light of the world. And kindled a spark that would spread through the world like wildfire. Lives were changed left and right. Satan tried to stamp it out, but it's all he did was scatter the embers. <laughs> and the gospel spread. We will never know how many relationships were restored. We will never know how many lives were affected and how many were changed. We won't know that on this side of eternity. We'll never know how many lives around us are being changed by the gospel that we live out through Jesus Christ. And through the pain, through the suffering, through the mess that we make, we're not going to know what God is doing. But his plan doesn't fail. And in the end, he's going to make something that we cannot possibly imagine. We cannot wrap our heads around. Now, I've only gotten a small sampling of the fruit from the people whose lives I've been around, who've told me about what an impact I have made on their lives, that God has made on their lives through me. I will never know what God has done through me. It's not about me, what I can do, but it's about the amazing things God can do through me and through you and through this church. And I can stand up here and talk about God's word all day long, but in my human strength, 
whatever care I put into the word, it means absolutely nothing if God's spirit isn't working in this room to change the hearts of the people here. I can say five words, but God's spirit can do so much more. So many of you, what are we trying to do on our own? How many times do we see a need in the lives of the people around us? And our first instinct is to see what we can do about it. There's a family that's suffering and they're in need. Oh, quick, let's make meals for them. Let's do what we can to comfort them. How often do we stop and pray? How often is that the first response when we see a need? When we see someone suffering in the world? We see someone who is lost, doesn't know the gospel, and they're suffering because of it. And they don't even realize it. And they're trying to live life on their own strength and their own power, and they don't realize they need Jesus. And we think, well, I can walk them through these scriptures, and I can argue with them about how there is a God, and there is a Savior who loves you and cares for you and died for you. Those are good and they're great things, but they are nothing if they're done in our own strength. The only good thing that can come out of it is if God works in their hearts and in their lives. How often do we make mistakes? How often do we sin against God and show our humanness and our brokenness and we try to fix it on our own? We try to think, oh, I can figure this out. I can work through it. How often do we turn to God first? How often is it our first response, or is it just an afterthought that we pray to God for help? What are we trying to do on our own? This morning, we have a physical reminder of what Jesus did for us at partaking of the Last Supper. And through the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, we're reminded it's not our own strength. The disciples brought nothing to the hill of Calvary. Peter tried to do it in his own strength, and he failed. Peter was bold, he was fearless, and he was ready to fight to the death to defend Jesus, but he failed. Hours later, he denied Jesus three times. He tried to work in his own strength, and he failed. He fell flat on his face. And Jesus told him it was going to happen. He told Peter he was going to fail. But his prayer about Peter was that God would restore him. God would bring him back. God would take the broken pieces of Peter's life and his mistakes and restore fellowship to him. And God's spirit would fill him and move in him and work in him. And yes, Peter failed. But God picked up the pieces and restored him. 
When Peter opened his mouth next, no, he didn't stick his foot in it like he'd done so many times before. And Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit came out through his words. Nothing in the world could keep Peter quiet. He could not help but preach the name of Jesus. The Pharisees told him to be quiet. Stop speaking about Jesus. No, nothing in the world is going to stop Peter. Why? Because the Holy Spirit was working through him. Peter brought nothing to the cross. The disciples scattered and fled like sheep without a shepherd. They brought nothing to the cross. Only Jesus did. The body and the blood of Jesus represents the life he gave to us. He died to take our sin, our brokenness, our deadness, and gave his life to breathe life into us. And to cause that life to grow. And one day this body that is dead to God will die and it'll be brought back to life again, to never sin again. God is working miracles. God is doing great things. And we bring nothing to it. The only thing we can bring is a surrendered life and a surrendered heart. So before we take of this physical reminder of what Jesus has done for us, let's take a moment to surrender to him.